0: specific to parents raising twins, triplets, and more. Learn more, subscribe to the show, or connect with Paul at TamaCapital.com.
1: This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for investment decisions. Clients of Tama may retain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast.
2: How can you develop a baseline understanding of the COVID virus? For me, it wasn't about getting political but instead searching for people dealing with the virus on the front lines, who were also reading and studying medical journals to help develop treatments. Dr. Taryn Clark is a problem solver by nature. She's an MD who specializes in neurology, working with high-risk elderly patients. Dr. Clark realized early on during the COVID outbreak that to help protect her patients, she would need to dive into the data and science of COVID. During our conversation, we cover various topics related to COVID, such as how the virus spreads, what vaccines do and don't do, and where medical data comes from. More importantly, Dr. Clark and I discuss how we can help protect one another and our families while reducing the spread of the virus, a topic in which Dr. Clark presents multiple examples of when you are sick, stay at home. Please enjoy my conversation with Dr. Taryn Clark. So, Dr. Clark, welcome to the emotional balance sheet podcast i've uh, I've been looking forward to this conversation for a week since we had it had it booked out. so welcome to the show.
1: Oh, thanks, me too. I'm looking forward to getting to talk to your listeners today too. Sounds like a fun crowd with multiples. Um I think my life is chaotic, and I can't even imagine if if any of my kids were multiples <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah it's uh it's a it's a life uh, my wife, Teresa and I have been living one day at a time that's turned into almost uh eleven years now. So I think where we'll start is is your background, um, and how you got so involved on the medical side of of COVID. So I think if you could let our audience know, like what what your specific focus or niches in the medical field, and then we'll then we'll kind of elaborate into uh, your work with COVID.
1: Oh, sure, that makes good sense. So I'm a, a neurologist by training. Um, so I I'm an MD. And then my specialty is neurology. And my my subspecialty beyond that is actually in cognitive impairment, which ends up being mostly dementia. So, you know, on the face of things, it's easy to say, well, why is a dementia specialist so deep into taking care of COVID patients? And why is she talking to me with my triplets or my quadruplets or my twins um, when really I take care of the elderly? Um, And so I got involved um, in really keeping up on the research in COVID because I was tremendously worried about my patients. I mean, they're the most vulnerable. And so in um, spring of 2020, um, I, you know, my, my focus became um, keeping them healthy, addressing their immune system to be sure that they were optimized. Cause there are a lot of things we can address in seniors. And um, I was seeing them be isolated, not getting outside. I'm um, actually doing all the things that are, the opposite of what we want to do for their brain health and their memory, and also the opposite of what we want to do for health. So um, I um, started being sure that their immune system was was boosted. Um, I actually ended up the, the oldest patient. I, I just saw her yesterday. Now she's 93, but at the time she got COVID in her memory care, she was 92. And um, I was obviously worried about her, um, but she ended up not even having a fever not having a cough. She had, um, really just nasal congestion and runny nose when she had COVID. So, um, you know, with some attention, um, to the senior immune system, we can really make this kind of a different path, even if they're in a nursing home. And so then that's trickled down that knowledge, you know, is also helpful for middle age. It's also helpful for kids. Um, so, you know, I've been really keeping up with the statistics and which age groups are affected and, and been able to keep my focus mostly on the elderly because they're at risk. Kids are actually doing pretty well um, getting through this. And um, all three of my kids have had um, SARS-CoV-2. Uh, whether or not they've had symptoms, um, they've all um, at some point tested for antibodies. So um, that's kind of my journey. So I've seen it from the the lower end of the age spectrum in my family and and certainly probably the the way, way, way upper end from my, um, medical practice. So that's, that's how I come to it. And it is odd as a neurologist, but, you know, virology and immunology, we learned in first year medical school, it's pretty basic stuff actually. And, um, it, it's not hard to go back and kind of read up on all of that and review and bring it back to, um, top of mind, um, in clinical focus. So that's, that's my kind of circuitous way of getting back to, uh, COVID. <laughs>
2: So one of the things I, I, I should let off with as well is I, my audience is, is pretty varied, but the one thing that, that we're going to do with our conversation and, and having kind of a pre-conversation about this is we're going to keep the, the politics and the drama out of this. And so I think, I think people on both sides of the aisle hopefully will appreciate both of this conversation because as, as a parent um, of four young kids, um, my triplets are in fifth grade going on 11 years old and my plus one Mac is um, in fourth grade and, and um, going to be nine in a few weeks. You know, we've, we've had some, you know, cases already th- thus far um, in their classes. So, you know, everybody's concerned. Um, but I think what, what people, people, it seems like with this, they go out and search for their own data, if you will. So when you talk about looking at at data and science, where does that where do you go for that data where do you go to look for that for this for the science if you will
1: I mean for me I'm looking at medical journals so um, you know and I agree with you I don't want to get controversial and I don't want to get political at all um, but I do stick to the science and and so the you know there are a lot of things that are in conflict with the science that are Publish all the time that are kind of in the lay press. Um, and so I'm looking at medical journals. So even if I'm talking to a pharmacist about prescribing something, you know, if I'm talking about ivermectin, which should not be controversial, and I'm not sure why it is. And, and it's strange to me to see the general public discussing medications, you know, like they know the, the mechanism of action, which probably they don't. Um, but I'm, I'm looking at, you know, journal of antibiotics. I'm looking at journal of, of therapeutics. These are pharmacology journals that describe the mechanism of action. So that's where I'm coming from. I'm looking at, you know, international studies on therapeutics of which there are many. So um, I'm not like, I'm not on the web looking at Medscape and, you know, some of these kind of pseudo medical websites, um, I'm looking at the actual medical literature and the data and data coming out of other countries that are a little ahead of us um, with some of their curves and, you know, so we, we can kind of see what's coming our way. Um, so that's what I'm looking at. but. You know, a lot of those kind of pseudo-medical sites, that's not actually data. They have a lot of things that are, you know, quote-unquote expert opinion without even saying who the expert is. And a lot of those times, they're kind of in conflict with the medical literature, which is, I think, what makes it so difficult as a layperson to really sort this out, um, because you're not used to probably reading the medical literature. Um, And really, we shouldn't have to. We should be able to just go to our doctor and kind of hear what they have to say and uh, the, those doctors that we trust and we know and we have a relationship with, that's, that's what we've always done. So it is kind of a funky um, time to navigate for, for everybody. See, I like,
2: I like, and I think there's, there's, a, there's a strange similarity to the world that I live in in the field of, of wealth management, especially on the portfolio management side. Anybody can go out and buy a stock and they can see that stock go up, you know, 100%. And think, wow! I I must have known something. Well, it, you you maybe you did, maybe you didn't. And and when it comes to looking at the 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 medical journals that that you referenced, I don't know necessarily how I, how how I would be able to help how in the hell I'd be able to read those. But I know how to read a balance sheet and a financial statement and a cash flow statement at PL for a company's earnings. And most people don't know how to do that either. But you'll, depending on where you get your, your resources or, or information, you know, obviously there's various sides that can steer you in either, either the direction. I think, I think what the, one of the points that you made is that you could probably find, depending on what your view is, you can find data that uh, substantiates that data or disclaims that data. Is that, am I on the right path there?
1: Yeah. I mean, I think you're, you're definitely on the right path with, um, you know, everybody's an expert suddenly, which is is interesting. It's um, scary. <laughs> to me, it it's scary. scary. Uh, and then, I mean, the other thing is, yes and no, you can cherry pick data. Certainly, you, you can do that. But, I, you know, when I actually look at, at the worldwide medical data, it's really telling a story that's pretty consistent, and it's often a conflict in conf- a conflict with politically what we're doing. So it's, it's not even that you have to kind of cherry pick and only look for good news, which, you know, I'm a problem solver by nature. Um, and, and so, you know, I'm looking at the medical literature of how can I help people? How can you know, how can I use this data to figure out how to help my na- my patients navigate through this pandemic? Um, so I'm not cherry picking data, like for, for political reason, I'm looking at literature that can help guide my treatment. Um, and, and it's, it's plentiful. So, um, you know, I'm not seeing a lot of data that is actually against, um, the therapeutics and things like that. It's really interesting. I see a lot of expert opinion and, you know, statements, but, um, I don't actually see literature to back most of those statements up and they're not quoted. They're not referenced so that it's, you know, I don't, I don't follow expert opinion when there's no data that it's referencing.
2: Okay, so let's let's actually step way back. And yeah. so you you actually gave an, an incredible presentation a few weeks ago um, to one of my um, clients I work with out in California. And I think one of the things that really struck me was that you kept you know the politics out of it, um, which to me was a breath of fresh air. And and how you started that that discussion was just talking about how covid spreads so can you can we start start there and and kind of walk our audience through um the details behind how this thing spreads
1: yeah and it's it it's so important now because we've been living with this for so long to really you know think about the high risk areas and the low risk areas Um, and so it you know this it's Airborne, um, which doesn't mean atmospheric. And so the difference there is airborne means that a pathogen is contagious between two people at a relatively close range in a poorly ventilated space. That's really where um, you have high risk of transmission. Um, where you don't have risk of transmission is outdoors. I mean, by definition, that's well ventilated. Um, you know, the rapid dispersion of molecules. I think one of the things I said in that conference, and I've said a lot of times, I mean, it's why we don't worry about, if you're a boater, you flush your head in the ocean. We don't worry about somebody at the beach getting E. coli from you flushing your your head three miles out. It's just, you know, the trillions and trillions and trillions of molecules that immediately disperse um, these things. And, you know, COVID, well, so in this talk, I'll just use kind of COVID and sars COVID-2 interchangeably, which is not really accurate, but it's kind of hard to be the virus of SARS-CoV-2. When you get very ill from it, it's called COVID-19. That's actually the disease state. So, you know, they're not interchangeable, but, but in, in late talk, they have become. So, um, you know, to get SARS-CoV-2, it's not floating in the air between people who are just casually walking by each other at the park. I mean, it's rapidly killed by UV light. Um, It just doesn't survive um, for a long time in air and in a relatively dry environment. So, you know, in order to catch it from somebody outside, they literally, if they're just walking past you, they would have to cough on your face. I mean, you're not going to get it from just casually breathing outdoors, walking, you know, three feet by somebody else. So um, a lot of that. It's important to be getting fresh air when we're in that environment. It's important to let our um, our face dry out from the moisture that's trapped from masks. We need to get a break from masking. So, I mean, I think that's one of the things is, is I noticed early on with my patients when it was said to be airborne, they mistook that as atmospheric, as if it was just floating outside wanting to attack them. And it just means it's from people at close range. So, and that's why schools are a concern, right? Cause kids are at close range indoors. A lot of schools are older. They don't have great ventilation so that, you know, it's a high transmission environment. So that's why we're talking about schools so much.
2: So how does, how does the, the, the SARS, hopefully I get it right. Sar, SARS, <laughs> SARS, is it SARS virus? Or it's, it's SARS CoV 2 virus. Right. Yeah,
1: we can just say COVID and mean the if you, I mean okay. whatever you want to say, or just say the virus. Okay.
2: <laughs> so serious. how does how does the COVID virus? Okay, we'll just use that COVID virus. Yeah. How does yeah. that differ in relation to like the typical cold virus or flu virus as far as like transmission goes?
1: There, it's actually pretty similar. They're respiratory viruses. Um, they're um, they have DNA or RNA um, as their, you know, source material that they spread that they, um, use to take over your cells. Um, and so they have a similar, um, transmission pathway. In fact, the, um, six foot rule, um, really came from a study of influenza, of how far they could measure it, um, within, I think it was actually an examination room, um, either at a hospital or a clinic, but that's, that's where that originally came from. I've seen some reports that that's completely arbitrary lately. Um, you know, there are some studies that measured, how far could viruses travel in, in a poorly ventilated space in a droplet really. And so um, it drops off really markedly with distance. So they're, they're very, they're similar. So, you know, everything we've been doing for flu, everything we've been doing for cold really should be the same as we're doing for SARS. And, and, from day one, you know, it's, we should be washing our hands and absolutely not touching our faces. And that's one of the things that's the hardest for kids, especially. <laughs> it's hard for me, yes.
2: Doctor Clark. It's hard for I me. I know.
1: <laughs> I know. I mean, I'm sure some of your military listeners will will recall how uh, much emphasis the military puts on that in boot camp. I mean, my brother in law said that was the first thing he learned. Like in boot camp, you don't touch your face. I would think it's got to be the same now, but um, he still doesn't touch his face. I mean, has the most amazing discipline, um, you know, and, but that can probably only come from military training or, you know, medical training. Like I would never in a million years touch my mask. I mean, if you touch your mask in the OR, you're pulled out, you're not sterile. It's a big, embarrassing thing. You're totally humiliated. So, you know, uh, the basic hygiene is the most important, not touching your face or your mask and washing your hands. Cause this is a respiratory virus, just like the other two you mentioned.
2: So does the, cause it seems like back in March of 2020, when this thing really hit, I I think it seemed like the fear was how fast it could spread. Does it spread faster than the typical flu or cold? Because I mean, I can recall during some flu seasons, you know, areas getting really hard hit
1: it's that's a great question so and a funny story relating to that we um I remember in January 2020 right when the kids got back from school from uh, uh winter break there were 13 kids in my son's sixth grade class that were out the same week and we were all like holy smokes this is the craziest flu like we got almost we I mean, nearly half the class was out at the same time um and I, I think all of us are looking back thinking, huh, was that COVID? Because there were so many kids at <laughs> once. Um, you know, really when they started, when when they took the massive action in March, I think their goal was not that it spread so fast, but the concept was, can we stop this before it takes hold and becomes an endemic cold virus in our society? I mean, th- that was the goal, like to see if, can we stop this thing from becoming omnipresent in our community. So I, it wasn't really that it, it was so contagious. It was that we were hoping we could limit its spread and not have outbreaks in every major city and every state in the nation. Um, it wasn't as contagious at that time as it actually is now. The Delta variant is more contagious. When I was treating um, people like over the I really started treating um, over summer of 2020. Um, it was really common when I would see uh, some person, one person in the family would get sick often nobody else in the family would get sick. The household contact rate was about 20%. Um, so if you're a multiple or have lots of kids like I do, that's really like one person in the family getting it. Now, when I see people, I almost always start treating everybody else in the household right away because if they have five people in their family, four or five of them are going to get it. So it's, it's more contagious. Um, it's perhaps less severe. You know, we look at the death rates. We have these high spikes of case load right now um but the death rate from that is a quarter of what it was um for example in the in the spike last summer so you know the it is much less severe that's generally the way that viruses mutate you you have to know we we've never had a worldwide outbreak of Ebola and it's because it's it's too fatal um it kills its host quickly a virus can't think it doesn't have any way of you know it's not thinking but evolutionarily what it wants to do is infect the most people. So it stays spreading in the community. So they generally do mutate to more contagious, less severe, because if they mutate to too severe, that, that mutation will die out pretty quickly because it will kill its hosts. So, um, but that's where we are. This, the Delta has been highly, highly contagious. And that's why you're seeing these crazy spikes we're seeing this summer or this crazy big spike everywhere. Um, So that, that part's kind of interesting.
2: And as far as, is mutations go, obviously we're, we're dealing with Delta right now, but this thing will continue this, the virus should continue to, to mutate. Is that correct?
1: Yeah. It's what viruses do. They drift, they have genetic drift. So um, they're always, I mean, every time somebody has COVID, I mean, it, every host is producing mutant strains. So, you know, there's, there's some genetic difference there. And then, you end up selecting for, I mean, it's part of a little bit of the controversy controversy that some virologists bring up about, um, you know, and I'm not trying to be political with this. I'm just explaining to you why some virologists are speaking out, like what their point is of it. Um, This, the virologists who've come out and said, you know, vaccinating in the middle of a pandemic is putting pressure on the virus to mutate. Um, what, What happens? So let's, let's say, um, I'm not vaccinated, and you're vaccinated. Let's say I get COVID. We spend a bunch of time at close range um, in the 24 hours before my symptoms come out, um, and but you're vaccinated. So this the if I've produced mutants that you know the the vaccine mediated immunity in your body recognizes the, that virus is not going to infect the cells in your body. That one's not really going to take hold in your system. Cause your body's going to immediately recognize it and knock them out. If I've produced some that they're a little bit, they're different enough that your, your immune system doesn't recognize them as SARS cov 2 you're going to get sick with those. And then most of yours, when you p- reproduce that virus can be similar to that one. So that's how the virologists are talking about selecting for mutants that or variants that aren't controlled by the vaccine. That's called vaccine escape. Um, and so that's, part of the concern with, um, with vaccinating in the middle of the pandemic. That's where that, that controversial, um, area in medicine, that's where the, the thinking behind that comes from the theoretical value. I think it's, it's helpful to understand too. I I think I talked at the conference, did you want me to talk about kind of the difference between your immune system from the vaccine and from, um, recovering from the virus? Is that helpful to understand, do you think for your listeners?
2: I think so but before you go there because this was okay. actually one of the next questions I wanted to ask and I think you you pointed this out in in that in that conversation was that the, I, there's there was potentially this belief that and and I don't know if, if where it came from or or, or what so again I, I'm trying yep. to tread lightly on this question but just because and I think you just pointed it out is just because you got the vaccine doesn't mean you still can't get the virus. Just like every flu season, like you get a flu shot, you can still end up getting the flu because it's a different strain, right?
1: Exactly. And so even the initial studies that um, Pfizer and Moderna did, they didn't, okay, so they they actually didn't assess if it stopped transmission. That was never part of their original data. What they assessed was um, basically severity of symptoms. So the way Um, those initial studies were done are probably a little bit different than you would imagine a a vaccine study would be done. And so what they did is they, they gave the vaccine to um, thousands of people and they had thousands of controls. And so the way that they picked, uh, did their conclusion data was that they said, okay, when we get the first, I think it started with 95 people and then it got pushed up a little bit just because they needed to, to get the significance out of it. Um, So when we get the first 95 people who have COVID, then we're going to test them and see if they were, then we're going to unblind them and see if they were vaccinated or unvaccinated. So what happened in that first group is the first 95 people came forward with COVID symptoms and they looked at them and 90 of them um, had uh, not been vaccinated and five of them had. And so that's where that data came from, that they took those numbers and said, okay, um, it's 95% effective, you know, and I'm not exactly quite right on the numbers. And I I apologize that I should be exact on that, but I haven't. Actually talked about the initial studies in a while, um, so it, it wasn't that you know, you know many of us I think would imagine that they gave the vaccine to thirty thousand people and then they tested all those people for antibodies to see who in the meantime had gotten SARS cov two and either had an asymptomatic infection or you know who got infected and who didn't. That's not what they did. So it it doesn't. So they didn't do data to show that. It prevents infection, which it doesn't. It doesn't prevent transmission. That's not what it was shown to do. What it did in those studies was decrease severity. So you can still get infected, which is part of the challenge. A lot of this narrative has been get the vaccine and you won't get COVID. If we're being purist and saying, okay, you won't get double pneumonia associated with this virus, that's probably true. But I think, you know, you still can get the virus. And we've seen, in fact, a lot of outbreaks. Um, I treated an outbreak in a company where there's somebody vaccinated and I think there's this false sense of security. They were vaccinated and they had a cold. So they came to the conference thinking it couldn't be COVID. Well, it was COVID and, and it will be a cold for You know, people who are vaccinated and a lot of people who aren't vaccinated. So the challenge is we have to every cold, every time you have that feeling in your sore throat, you must stay home Um, because COVID can be that mild and it's easy to spread that way. You can still be spreading it when you just have that tickle in your throat. Um, So so that's the challenge. Yes, you still can get infected with the virus. Even if you've been vaccinated, you still can transmit it. So we still need to be super careful. The the benefit is it probably won't be as severe. It it does look like it's preventing hospitalizations and deaths. So, you know, that's why it's really helpful. The person who's vaccinated, it's protecting them from severe disease, but it's not protecting them from getting infected, from transmitting. So it, it you know, it's it's lessened severity of disease, which is a good thing.
2: So it's th- so at the end of the day, <clears throat> it's still better to, and again, audience, I'm not making this political. It is, it is still in your best interest. All, all the the data points to this, that it's still in your best interest to get the vaccine because it helps protect you. And from getting from basically if you get the virus from getting the the severe, uh, the severity of it.
1: I think that's a fair statement to say. And the way I would say it also, and, and I've said to some of my patients and families, and families with kids, because it's really hard to decide for our kids. Um, you know, I think the first step is really looking at the the fatality rates for this virus. It's a highly survivable virus for most people under sixty. Um, so, I think that first looking at your your risk factors. You know, for for me, I was forty eight when I um, got this virus, and I just didn't have any fear that I wouldn't survive it. I mean, you know, I looked at the statistics. I'm quite healthy. I'm really tuned into my immune system. Um, I, I eat super well. I exercise. I, I do all those things, quote unquote, right. I just, I didn't have any fear that I was going to pass away from it or, or be hospitalized or even get pneumonia. I mean, I, you know, so, you know, first can you, of all, can, at can you share you this?
2: Can like you that. share the story of how you, of how oh, you so contracted gross. that? Because I thought that was a uh, that was one of the parts where it's like you injected some good humor when you, when we needed it during that conversation.
1: Yeah. I mean, so, so you have to know, so I'm here, I am working with my elderly folks and my seniors um, and they're so frail and I'm seeing them get through it. And by, by the, you know, by fall last year, I had treated, you know, several handfuls of people in their eighties and seventies, and they were surviving this and doing well and not going to the hospital. So, you know, I had, a, I had a different viewpoint of this firsthand. And so I was looking, I'm going, I'm 48. I'm like I said, pretty healthy. Um, or I do my best at least. And, uh, and I really didn't think these vaccines were coming out anytime soon. You know, Trump was saying, Oh, they're going to be out in December. I was like, Oh yeah, right. These are three years down the line. I, I just didn't think that really was on the horizon. And And my, my feeling at that point was I just have to get immune to this because I, my worst fear would be, you know, you really can transmit in the 24 hours um, before you get symptoms. And that's the asymptomatic part where you don't know that you have it yet. Gosh, can you imagine if I came to my clinic, which I was back in person by then and got and exposed all my seniors to this? I can't imagine the call. Like Dr. Clark has COVID. You need to get tested. I mean, it would just be the worst thing ever. I wasn't worried for myself. I was only worried for them. So some point, I was treating somebody in my neighborhood. I thought, I got to get this thing. So um, I just had them cough all over my hands. They were acutely ill. I was treating them. Rubbed it all over my face, rubbed it all over my nostrils, you know, because we don't touch our faces when we're sick. Okay, my hands were probably full of virus. Um, did the same thing with my husband. And then we just locked our house down, you know, planning for two weeks of, okay, we're just going to lock down, get this over with and move on. And uh, so we both did get sick for us. It was like three days of stuffy nose and the headache. You're not getting around the headache. I don't think that the headache is, I don't know how to avoid that. It's a pretty consistent symptom. It's, it's pretty intense in between the eyes. Um, so we got over it, but yes, it's kind of gross, but you know, we all have kids, like we've been bathing in germs, right? I mean, right. I haven't changed the diaper for a long time, but as a parent, like I, I you know, and and I knew I just had to get immune. So it, I guess it was our version of a, a chicken pox party, which I don't, rec- I do not recommend. Please don't let your friends with COVID cough on your hands. I'm not advocating for this. It's a bad idea. But um, but at that point, I just I knew I had to take the infinitesimally small risk, um, of of getting sick. I mean, yeah, I, I'm not a great driver. I drive like a grandma. So I figured having COVID was way less risk than me getting in my car every day. So I'm sure my husband would agree. Um, but yeah, so. I, I mean, I just, you know, so I look at my statistics and, and so then people ask me like, oh, would you get the vaccine? Um, you know, it, it's hard for me to say because it's it's not on my radar because I, as somebody who's COVID recovered, I, I don't see any convincing data that we need to vaccinate COVID recovered. And and of course there is a concern that, that COVID recovered may be at higher risk from side effects from the vaccine. So I had the luxury of not actually having to make the decision to get it or not. So I don't know, you know, um, if I would have people always ask me that abstract question and, and do you want to, is this a good time to talk about like maybe the bicycle analogy? Cause I think it's easy for people to understand.
2: Yes. Yeah. That, that would, yes, that would be a great place to go.
1: Okay. So, so the way I explain, um, I usually explain the immunity that's conferred by vaccination or by, um, natural infection and recovery is the bicycle analogy. So, When you get infected with SARS-CoV-2, it's like, let's say the virus is like a bicycle. So once your body reproduces that bicycle and then your body attacks it and breaks it down, you're going to generate antibodies to every part of that bicycle that's broken down. So you're going to have antibodies to the frame and to the wheel and to the spokes and the handlebar and the seat chain and pedals and every part of that bike. And that's pretty realistic because when you break down COVID uh, or SARS-CoV-2, um, you generate between four and 500 antibodies to the different parts of that broken down virus. And those are called epitopes. Um, when you're vaccinated. So, so in then any time a bicycle comes in, you're going to recognize it because you've got antibodies to all the parts of it. Um, when we're vaccinated, we're basically injecting a piece of um, RNA that's going to make us manufacture wheels. Okay. That's the spike is the wheel in this analogy. So, then your body will break down those wheels and you'll generate probably somewhere under 20 antibodies to the different broken down parts of that wheel. The problem with SARS-CoV-2 is the spike, the wheel is the most variable part of that virus. So that's where we get into a little bit of challenge in terms of selecting for, for, um, vaccine escape. So the concept is that if you recognize wheels, your immune system is ready to be attacked by a wheel If a bike comes your way, the immune system should recognize those wheels and say, hey, this big thing is a foreign invader and we've got to break it down. The challenge is how variable does the wheel have to be before you don't recognize it as a bicycle? So somebody who's COVID recovered isn't as reliant on recognizing the wheel because even if it has a new tire and we totally don't recognize that wheel, the COVID recovered person's still going to recognize the frame the spokes, the handlebars, the pedal, all of those things that's still going to know it's a foreign invader. A very mutated wheel on a bike, you know, the the vaccine related immunity isn't going to recognize any other part of that virus. So that's where, um, you know, we get concerned. It's just, it's the vaccine related immunity is very narrow where natural immunity is much broader. And then we look to things like SARS COVID one, um, And that was in the early 2000s. People are still immune to SARS-CoV-1 now. We still can measure their T cells. That's their long-term immunity. So we have data that shows that, you know, immunity from these SARS viruses likely lasts decades, for sure years, but probably decades. And we just don't know lifelong yet because SARS-CoV-1 survivors are, they're only, you know, it's only 17 years later. So, and they also, with a 22% variability between SARS-CoV-1 and SARS-CoV-2, they're they're 78% the same genetically so they're 22% variable and there's cross immunity between the two so people who had SARS-CoV-1 are immune from SARS-CoV-2 and when we look at the variants they're at most 1% different the SARS-CoV-2 variants so that's you know that's where that's informing us that SARS-CoV-2 recovered likely don't need to have the vaccination and then you know there are immunologists who are concerned about you know, how, if you are going to get vaccinated, um, whether or not you need to, um, you know, that's one controversy. But then the other one is, you know, are, are those some of the folks we're seeing the side effects from? Are they still presenting antigen on some of their organs? And then we're charging up their immune system against their organs. And, you know, is that where the myocarditis is coming from? Well, you can make a case from that. And in kids who may have a totally asymptomatic course of SARS-CoV-2, we don't know that they were infected. You know, are we vaccinating kids that maybe, are still presenting antigen on some of their organs, and is, is that where those side effects are coming from? And and that is a, an area that really needs to be looked into because that would be a risk we could mitigate easily by checking kids, especially you know, it looks like we're going to have vi- um, vaccine for maybe five to eleven year olds. They're saying maybe by October, but by Halloween, um, you know, I think there are a lot of us who are saying like, couldn't we just take that step of checking for antibodies first to try to mitigate some harm? So I think that's. That's where my mind goes when I see all these kids who have asymptomatic infection, you know I just think, could we take just a, another little lab step and have a little more information about keeping them safe from harm
2: so it so along those lines, you would get them tested for the for the antibody and instead to see if they're actually if they're if their body's making it it's it, on its own. <laughs>
1: I would. Um, so with my kids, that's what I was. I mean, you know, since I'm a physician, it was it's kind of easy to order lab order. So I was just kind of surveilling them. You know, if, if they had a mild cold, we'd lock down for 14 days and then I would test them three weeks later to see if it was because um, my preference is actually not going out of the house when they're sick and not taking them to a center to get tested my preference is just totally isolate. Um, and so, and like my, my college kid, he came home at Thanksgiving and I said, well, time to go get your antibodies checked since you're home. He came home with the antibodies and, and his first semester, he had one day of sore throat, which he put on his app, but they didn't call him in for testing. Um, so I don't know if that's when he had SARS cov 2 or if it's another asymptomatic time. Um, but I think that's really important because so many kids have an asymptomatic course because they you know, have cross immunity from another coronavirus that they've had as cold. Um, I, I think just doing a little extra due diligence and you can test kids for antibodies. You can't test them for the T cell test, unfortunately, because the emergency use authorization for that test is only for 18 and up, which I think is kind of a shame because, you know, if, if it's been more than six months since they were infected, we might not be able to measure their antibodies anymore. Um, but we'd probably be able to measure their T-cells and that would be good knowledge to have. Uh, so that's a little bit limiting for kids who are under 18.
2: Okay. So I, I think where I'd like to kind of shift our focus sure. it, it now is to talk about um, prevention, especially in, in what we can do um, as, as parents. But one of the things I want to go back to that you would, that along this lines that you kind of brought up before that I wanted to re-highlight and, and this is one of the key takeaways I took away from your initial conversation, was if you're sick, stay home. Now, spending 20, 25 years in the corporate world and having a wife that works in corporate America as well, that really goes against the grain of co- corporate culture uh, for the most part in the US. Like if you're sick, you know, a lot of places will still expect you to come in and grind it out. And when you made that very clear, and you gave a really great example that I'd like you to share with, with your colleague that you're walking in to the office and she had the sniffles or something. She's like, what are you doing here? Um, walk us through through that and and maybe if you can give examples of some of the the, the companies that you've worked with and how how companies can get over that hump or how can, or how forceful should, um, employees be about, okay, I'm not feeling well. I'm not going into the office.
1: It's a great question. And it's, you know, from the, from, it comes from both sides, I think in the corporate culture, it also comes, you know, it's, we wear it as a badge of honor that we can just do everything. And it doesn't matter how tired we are, how sick we are, whatever we can still, you know, we're so important and, and everything's going to collapse if we're not at work for a week. Um, And we've really got to change it. I, I don't think that most of this asymptomatic spread that we're talking about is really asymptomatic spread. I think it's, it's mildly symptomatic spread that people are not being honest about. And, and the reason I've come to that conclusion with no data to support it, by the way, (laughs) I'll be honest about that is it's just from my very small office. I mean, Three times during this pandemic, I've had to send people home who came to work sick. Which I, I just I think like, have have you watched the news? Like, why are you in my office where we see elderly with a scratchy throat or a sore throat? Like, it's amazing to me um, that people do this, but we do, and it's it's. And so I think even when you have that tickle in your throat, if you have a stuffy nose, you know. The story I told is, is I was one of my employees. We were but we saw each other in the parking structure and we're walking in. She's clearly super congested um, with nasal congestion. I said, you can't come into work today. Oh no. I'll just, and, and she said, well, I'll, I'm going to wear a mask. Like we always do anyway. But I was like, that's the problem. You can't rely on the masks. They just, they're not that effective. So I think, you know, between thinking we're indispensable and, and I think we've added on another layer on top of this now, it was just shame. Um, I don't think there was so much shame with being sick before, but now if you call in and, and you say you're sick and you want to stay home, it's that feeling of, oh, everybody's going to think I have COVID. And I'm, you know, there's just this, there's totally a different outlook on being sick. I don't think we have the attitude and we should in our corporate culture of, hey, thanks for keeping us from getting COVID or the flu or a cold or whatever it is. Cause we don't want it to go around the office, but it's more of this almost suspicious shaming of like, Oh, she's out today. I wonder if she has, you know, it shouldn't be that way. It should be like, Hey, thanks for being cautious. No matter what you have, I don't want it. Thanks. Um, so, you know, it's, it's, we, there just really needs to be zero tolerance, um, for, um, coming in with any sort of mild symptoms. And, you know, we've just gone on pretty much limitless, um, sick days. Because, you know, people aren't going to abuse that. I mean, if they do, that's on them. And I don't think they will. Um, but there just shouldn't, you know, that shouldn't be a concern that you don't have enough sick days and you're not going to get paid. We should be, you know, really encouraging people. And now that we know we can work from home pretty easily with all the, the strategies we've developed, um, we need to do that. But, you know, symptomatic dishonest spread is, is I think, really, really prevalent.
2: One of the, one of the things personally I worry about is, so I'm a, I'm a migraine sufferer. So it's like every time I get a a headache or, or a migraine, it's like, well, should I be concerned or is this just, you know, my normal part of life, you know, especially where I live here in in the Midwest, the Metro Detroit with, with the seasons, like, you know, weather changes have huge effects on my, my migraines. And so I, and unfortunately, I've seen this with one of my, um, my, my oldest daughter, who's the, who's the girl triplet. Um, she's starting to develop this as well. And I'm, I'm probably more concerned about just her having these, this hereditary migraine headache issue um, than necessarily having COVID. Um, but it is something that it, I don't necessarily know how to deal with it. It's like, am I, do I have COVID or just, just normal part of my life?
1: Yeah. So that's a good question. It's, it, it, Cause we were talking about the headache, the headache, you know, if you have listeners out there who've had it, I, I you know, most people have just a, a headache and that's pretty intense. It's usually between the eyes. It's the top of the nose. Um, a lot of us think that's because, you know, when those olfactory bulbs, uh, are getting attacked and why we lose our sense of smell, that's probably what's, what's hurting. Um, you know, so that part, like the localization, would give you some. I mean, being a neurologist, I, I kind of love talking about migraine too. Um, <laughs> That's local- another show.
2: We'll have you on to talk about those because I I know a few of our uh, listeners uh, <laughs> God, have that have I that know. same uh, dilemma that that I do.
1: Yeah. So if you have migraines that are pretty classic, I you know you should have that throbbing nature. They probably have a localization that they you know, they should have a pretty characteristic onset. Um, This COVID headache is really between the eyes and, and sharp and generally not throbbing. So that feels a little bit different. There's usually some nasal swelling with that and not necessarily even nasal discharge, but swelling that feels like allergies. So that's another thing that makes it a little bit difficult, but usually when people have that, they're starting to have a little bit of fatigue. So, you know, you can, most migraineurs have fatigue also, but the character of it should help you distinguish between, you know, this feels like a normal migraine for me, or this headache feels different. Um, and then the fatigue should help between people who are just having allergies, but not necessarily migraineurs and are starting to have COVID. So those are, are kind of helpful in that way.
2: Okay. So let's shift back to talking about what parents can do as far as um, prevention for themselves, prevention for um, their, their kids.
1: Okay. That's great. I love to talk about that because I have gotten a lot more interested in, um, supporting the immune system through COVID. I, I didn't really pay too much attention to the immune system. I was all about brain health and every, you know, supplement and and everything that your brain needs to stay healthy and hopefully not have Alzheimer's someday. Um, but in terms of immune health, um, so you've got to be doing the basics. You've got to be eating, right. Eating, right. Includes low sugar because you've got to keep your body in kind of a, a low inflammatory state, um, and exercising. So just the basics. Um, but in terms of immune support, what people can be doing to get through this virus with less severity, which is the goal, um, is, I mean, we've just got to accept the fact this thing is everywhere. It's not going away and it's, we're gonna get exposed to it. We just need to assume we're all gonna get exposed to it. And we're all gonna get it at one point or another. So, what I like for the adult immune system, uh, vitamin D has been shown um, in multiple studies to be a really key factor in severity. So, being sure your vitamin D level is above thirty, which is kind of the basic low, um, a lot of us like to see that in the forties or fifties. So, a vitamin D supplement. If you're taking a vitamin D supplement that's pretty high dose, like a like a 5,000 international units, which I think that is um, – now they're doing it in milligrams, which 25 milligrams is 1,000. So anyway, if you're taking a 5,000 international unit daily dose, which a lot of people are, then you want to be sure that you have either some calcium that you're taking with it or some vitamin K2 just to protect the bones because – when you're taking high dose, you know, you can have complications with that. Um, vitamin C is always important in cold and flu season. And we should be treating this like it's, you know, omnipresent cold and flu season really. Um, and then the other thing that I like that I was not taking prior to um, SARS cov 2 uh pandemic, uh, is quercetin and zinc. So I think that probably most of your listeners are very familiar with zinc, um, you know, like Zycam and things we take for colds. It really helps. Um, and they may or may not be, um, familiar with quercetin, although a lot of people are now, it starts with Q, Q Q-U-E-R-C-E-T-I-N. That's an interesting molecule. The way it works is that it's a zinc ionophore. So zinc, when you take it in your diet or as a supplement, it doesn't really get into the cells. It's mostly outside of the cells. We need it in the cells to protect us from viruses. And so what the quercetin does is it brings it in. Zinc actually sits on the main enzyme that viruses need to hijack, in our cells to reproduce themselves. So if we get a nice healthy level of intracellular zinc, which the quercetin pulls into the cells, then the virus has a harder time reproducing itself and infecting other cells and other people. So that's a great daily preventative. That's what I take every day. It's what I actually still have my kids taking it, even though they've all had coronavirus, because it also will help with you know any RNA or DNA virus is doing the same thing. So um, it helps with alcohols colds and flu. So that's what I do for adults. For kids, um, there's a there's a chewable corsetin um, that you can get on. I, I don't know if we can say brand name things, but on the the big place that everybody shops online. <laughs> I don't
2: know if you can say. Amazon, it's okay. Uh,
1: yeah, okay, okay. I didn't know. Like <laughs>
2: full disclosure, we're shareholders. <laughs>
1: Okay, there you go. <laughs> um, so uh, you can get on Amazon. It's QBC Plex, I think is the name of it. it. has quercetin, bromelain, has some vitamin C. So that's a chewable that kids can take and have that same compound. And then for little guys, um, really little guys, they make elderberry and zinc gummies. And I think those are a good way to have some zinc coming into their cells and keep them healthy and just help them get... I mean, with our little kids, the goal is just to get through this completely asymptomatic, Right. Um, at most they're probably going to have a cold, um, or light flu. I mean, just kids for the most part breeze through this. Um, and so if we just want to get everybody a step, you know, like younger in life, like my seniors, I want them getting through it like a middle-aged person where they've got a cold or a flu, but they're not going to the hospital for myself. I want myself getting through it like a 20 year old, you know, or, or a teen where, you know, I've got some cold symptoms. And and so for the little guys, we want them getting through it pretty much asymptomatic if we can. So that's where I, I think it's great. Um, if they can take, and of course, run it by your pediatrician, run it by your doctor, anytime you're taking a new supplement, but there's some great options. And like the elderberry and zinc gummies, they're available like at, you know, CVS Rite Aid. Um, so I think that's, I think it's a good idea to just kind of look at their immune system, be sure they're getting a little bit of an extra boost this season. Um, with your kids, I think it's tremendously important to just have them wearing, um, either disposable masks and changing them several times a day, or going to school with, I know this is going to ruin your life in terms of laundry, but they need to be wearing three or four different masks a day. If they're wearing a cloth mask um, and, you know, if they have a snack break, that's the first time they change it. And then they have lunch, then they have a second time they change it. And then they have a third one for the afternoon. Um, You know, it's really critical that we don't have them wearing dirty masks because, you know, as I effectively got myself sick. We get sick through our nostrils. That's where this virus gets in for the most part, sometimes the eyes, but mostly the nostrils. And so when we're putting dirty things right on their nose, it's it's just a direct conduit for introducing germs. Um, and we're seeing a lot of, and have been for the last year and a half, a lot of staph infection on kids' faces. Um, you know, that's that kind of like honey crusting they can get in their nasal labial folds, like a, a quarter of their mouth, um, And, you know, just wearing a moist mask that then is colonized with bacteria, we're putting it back on our face. It's, it's just not a good plan. Um, so, you know, the more we can have them changing into a single use clean mask, especially if they're wear, wearing it all day at school, that should be really three masks a day, whether they're paper and they're throwing them away, or, you know, or it's blown plastic, it's not paper, but you know what I mean? Um, or cloth ones, they, they can just bring those in a lunch bag and they're each in their, you know, they're taking them out and then putting them in a dirty lunch bag to bring home um, but if, if they're going to be wearing them, they need to be clean. And then, and, and reminding them to not touch those masks.
2: Yeah. That's, that's the one thing I took away from that, your conversation as well. When I, when I listened to it, when I was talking to Teresa and giving her, her the highlights, I'm like, uh, yeah, we need to make sure that we're like changing our mask, you know, multiple, at least once a day, if not multiple times a day, uh, which which is a little harder with our kids, our, our girls are a little bit better at it than, than our boys. But, uh. That that's something we've definitely changed here over the last uh, few weeks. Um, I know that I only have you for a finite period of time, and there's still like I'm looking at my list of questions, and I think we've covered half of it. So okay. we we may have to have you back on, um, especially talk about those migraines too, and and uh, and the neurology side of of, of what you do. Um, but I think what we'll go now is to our to my closing question, which I ask you know all of my guests, and knowing that you have three kids is. What is the best thing about being a parent
1: oh my gosh I think for me um, I'm an only child and my mom was an only child um, and I loved being an only child when I grew up I didn't really know anything different I mean I looked at around at other big families and I thought wow look at the vacations they go on with other families and it just seemed like they were all a team and, and so I thought that was kind of neat but I I didn't really like covet that, you know, I, I wasn't jealous of that. Um, But now that I have three kids and I see how much they love each other, I had no concept um, of how intense that would be and how much that would fill me up. Just watching them care for each other. Um, That's, that's been by far the best part for me, just knowing that they're going to grow up and have a relationship throughout life. I mean, it's making me cry. Think about it. Like, (laughs) probably because my mom just died too, but thinking, um, when I'm not here that, you know, that bond they'll have, I, I just had no concept of, of how wonderful that was. And I guess I do wish I had that. So that's been the best part, seeing them just love each other.
2: Well, so usually I would never ask another follow-up question with that, but because of my (laughs) situation and, and, and yours as well, I have to ask how long did it take for them to love, love each other? (laughs) (laughs) Because right now I don't think my foursome, my triplets plus one, are really loving each other. (laughs)
1: Um, uh, You know, there, I'm sure a lot has to do with birth order. We're boy, girl, boy. So they, you know, I, I, there's so many dynamics there, but I would say, especially now that we have one in college, I've got a, I've got 19 year old boy, 16 year old daughter, 13 year old boy. I would say now that they're teenagers, um, they really appreciate each other and um, it, it, they really are want to stay in touch with each other. You know, they know that their big brother is out in the world and, and they want to maintain that connection. Um, and so maybe that's, I, I think, teenage years. When they figure out who they are um, and they're comfortable with who they are, then I think they start to appreciate who their siblings are and 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 not fight over the differences, but kind of celebrate. Just celebrate themselves as people. So, so it's coming. It's coming. <laughs> Maybe a couple more years. <laughs>
2: well, Doctor Taryn Clark, I cannot thank you enough for going so deep that you did. And I think for the most part, uh, we we did a we both did a really excellent job on on keeping politics out of this conversation and and really delivering just what people can do um, for themselves as parents for their kids um, and just. You know, be better informed. Um, I think that was definitely my my overarching goal with having this conversation with you and and um, uh, and and that last question. I, I love it. I that's that's been my favorite part of this this journey of of the show. Um, and yeah, I get this question a lot. It's like, well, what do you talk about? Aren't you a financial planner? I'm like, yeah, but there's so much more to financial planning than just numbers. And actually, you know, the, the emotional side, the lifestyle portion of, of what I do and working with families far outweighs what I do from a uh, numbers portfolio management standpoint. And having conversations like this um, are what people truly enjoy and get the most out of. So I can't thank you enough for for being on and, and sharing your expertise and knowledge. And I'm sure this is not the, the last of, of our conversations. I'm sure there'll be many to come.
1: Oh, sure. I'd welcome that. It's been great talking with you this morning. And I, I hope it it helped answer some questions for your listeners.
2: Thanks, Dr. Clark.
1: Thank you.
0: Thank you for listening to this episode of the Emotional Balance Sheet Podcast. Please visit TamaCapital.com to subscribe to this podcast or to connect with certified financial planner and registered investment advisor Paul Fenner of Tama Capital. And please join us again next time on the Emotional Balance Sheet Podcast.